everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I am Jody Grinwald. This week, my guest is Ugo Balta, an experienced award-winning broadcast and digital media news executive directing growth and innovation in several divisions and businesses in the U.S. and Latin America. Ugo's nearly 30 years of experience include leadership roles with storied news networks like NBC, ABC, CBS, and Telemundo, just to name a few. Ugo is the owner-publisher of the Latino News Network, the only English-language news and information outlet focused on serving Hispanics Latinos in New England. Ugo is also a writer and associate editor for The Chicago Reporter, producing stories focused on covering race, ethnicity, and culture in the third largest market in the United States. In 2016, he was inducted into the National Association of Hispanic Journalists Hall of Fame, and as part of his acceptance, founded the Hortensia Zavala Scholarship a not-for-profit to help students with the high cost of education. Ugo was born in Patterson, New Jersey, and is the proud son of Peruvian immigrants. He shares that growing up, he felt like a child of two worlds. He had the responsibility at a young age of bridging the language barrier between his parents and the outside world. He now resides in Chicago, and over the last 10 years, his focus has been on the intersection of DEI work and journalism creating authentic messaging to Hispanic, Latino, and marginalized communities, and sharing stories that are fair and accurate. We go on to discuss why it is so hard to find media stations that are politically neutral. There were many times in his career that Ugo could have chosen to blend in, have a big title, hefty paycheck, but that would have caused him to have to stray from his beliefs and convictions. When those situations would arise, he would think about what his mom had to go through working in a sweatshop or that he never saw his dad much as he worked two to three jobs seven days a week. His parents worked hard to be able to provide Ugo with the incredible opportunities that he has been able to leverage. From messaging around never giving up or compromising your beliefs to don't listen to all the noise, Ugo has so much insight to offer. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Today's the Day Changemakers YouTube channel and share a comment. Your comments matter and help our episodes to be heard. Listening to others brings support, ideas, and ongoing connection. You can also download this podcast on Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other streaming sites. Please take a moment to write a review that will help my guests be heard. The algorithm is such that comments, likes, and shares are vitally important and so very much appreciated. I will be thanking those who take the time to review the podcast on upcoming episodes. The best gift you can give someone is your time, and I so appreciate yours. As a certified professional coach and consultant, I focus on how connection is at the core of all that we are and all that we do, from how we connect to ourselves, our goals, to our careers and family. I would love the opportunity to connect with you and help you on your journey. Reach out to me directly at Jody, J-O-D-I, at todayistheday.liveit.com. And don't forget to follow Today Is The Day Live It on Instagram and Facebook. Coming soon, a new Changemakers Membership Connective. Go to todayistheday.liveit.com to learn more. Thank you for supporting the Today is the Day Changemakers podcast. The views expressed by all Today is the Day Changemakers podcast guests are their own. Their appearance on the Today is the Day Changemakers podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity that they represent. Have a great week, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I am Jody Grinwald, and every week, as I always say, I get to interview the most incredible humans who are just doing great work in their corner of the world and beyond. And today I have Hugo Balta with, with me. Hi, Hugo. How are you? Hi, how are you? Thank you very much for the invitation. 
Oh, absolutely. And I just want to make mention how incredible LinkedIn can be, because that's how we connected. And I'm grateful for that. You, you know, you get to see a little bit about my work. I get to see a little bit about your work and coming at it from a very authentic space of saying, I just want to share your story. Right. I wasn't I, I wasn't selling you anything. It was all about that. And I'm grateful that you you agreed to join me. So thank you so much. Of course, my pleasure. So Hugo, I'm gonna read a little bit from your bio because I never try to get it right and memorize it. So um, Hugo is an experienced award-winning broadcast and digital media news executive directing growth and innovation in several divisions and businesses in the US and LATAM. LATAM, is that how I say it? Yes, Latin America. Uh, yeah, that's what I thought, but it said LATAM. So I'm like, I wanna make sure I get that correct. Hugo's nearly 30 years of experience include leadership roles with storied news networks like NBC, ABC, CBS, and Telemundo. Hugo is an entrepreneurial journalist. He is the owner publisher of the Latina News Network, the only English language news and information outlet focused on serving Hispanic Latinos in New England. LNN also amplifies the work of others in elevating the visibility and voices of a community often absent in newsrooms and news coverage. I'm really looking forward to talking about that with you because I think that is just so important that we talk about that. LNL is an incubator for young journalists to get the mentoring and experience they need on their road to a successful career. He is currently a writer and editor for the Chicago Reporter, producing stories focused on covering race, ethnicity, and culture in the third largest market in the United States. In addition to being an accomplished journalist, Hugo is the only president to serve two terms in the National Association of Hispanic Journalists History. In 2016, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame as part of his acceptance, founded the Hortensia Zavala, am I right? Yep, Good. So Zavala Scholarship, a not-for-profit to help students with the high cost of education. As an experienced change agent, Hugo has been successful in transforming workplace culture and adopting the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion by changing the na negative narrative, and I love this, of fixing a problem to one of realizing an opportunity. And there's a lot more in your, in your bio and so much that I, I could keep going, but I want us to have a conversation. I always ask this to Hugo, how does it feel to hear that back? Uh, it feels like um, I've had a, a lot of um, a lot of uh, what is it? I, I've been around the block a couple of times, right? Uh, it, it's sometimes also even reads like an obituary. It's like wow, um, but but also more than anything, gratitude. You know, I've I've had um, uh, very much the the opportunity, and I'm very grateful for it to work with many storied uh, news organizations and continue to do so. Um, and even some of the things that you've mentioned. Um, there are even add-ons. Right now, I'm also working with WBBM News Radio here in, in Chicago. We expanded uh, the Latino News Network editorial focus to Illinois as well. Uh, with the Artista Savala Foundation, we've also expanded our support of young journalists with journalism camps. So the journey continues. Um, I'm certainly uh, proud and grateful because it's not just about me, right? I all of us, if we've had any level of success, can point to a number of people who have helped us um, be successful. Uh, so I'm very so when I when I hear everything that you've mentioned, there are faces that pop up, people who are who have been part of my life, my career, who still are part of my life and my career, and and um, who who come along with me in this journey, this continued journey of journalism and and life. And I think it's so important. I always say this about, you know, thanking those people, having that gratitude. And I think that also opens the door for more of that, because no matter what age we are, 
we learn we're you know forever learners lifelong learners and it's important to have that gratitude and and that's why sometimes it's nice to have somebody else read your bio to you because then you can <laughs> you can remember remember all the things that you accomplished but i, I want to go back you go with you a little bit in in your life and where did you grow up i grew up in the northeast um i'm a proud pattersonian uh, i was born and raised in patterson new jersey an inner city right outside New York. So very much part of the New York metropolitan area. I'm the proud uh, son of Peruvian immigrants, Hugo and Graciela Valta. And like so many children of immigrants, I certainly feel like I'm a child of two worlds. Um, I feel 100% and I'm very proud of being a, an American, but I'm also 100% Peruvian and proud of my uh, Peruvian heritage and, and uh, my roots. And as such, I am bilingual, bicultural, um, navigate between two worlds. And that's really had a, a, a very positive and enriching effect on my career. That, and I think that's, in, it's, it's interesting because I don't think that everybody thinks of it like that. Like it is two worlds, right? So it, it truly is. And I don't know that we all realize that. And it's important for us to, to know that because even, even um, as you say, bilingual, there are certain words that just don't translate, right? That they're, they're just specific and you, there's an understanding of that word within that culture. And I think that is just important for, for us to, to realize and, and bring to the forefront that it is two, it is two worlds. And, and we, you know, those of us who were born here and who don't have that heritage, need to understand how incredibly magnificent it is. You know, when I look at look at that, you know, I wish I spoke multiple languages, you know, and I think it's it's a it's wonderful to be able to communicate with more you you're able to communicate with more people that way. And I'm all about connection, so I wish I spoke 10 languages. It, it would be wonderful. <laughs> the show would have we'd have a lot more people on the show. Um Patterson, New Jersey, would you say that where you lived you felt like you embraced in the culture that you were born into or or was it not like that back then? Well, I think it's a little bit of everything. You know, Patterson has a rich history um, in our country. It, it was certainly part of the Industrial Revolution. Um, notable names for, uh, for Patterson is Alec Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he was the founder of Patterson and so certainly very much part of the American experience revolution. Uh, Lou Costello, uh, you know, a, a very beloved uh, comedian in the 30s and 40s. Um, the hurricane, you know, an African-American boxer and so on and so forth. My parents went to Patterson, again, very much like so many immigrants, because that's where the jobs were. Um, Patterson, uh, known as Silk City, had many different factories and they both came independently looking for work. So a large number of Peruvians came to Patterson and like so many immigrants, they all gravitated and lived in certain neighborhoods. So when I, when I, was, when I was growing up, I certainly um, was part of that Hispanic Latino uh, immigration experience, and I, you know, I was surrounded by people who um, were a, a little bit like me, maybe not necessarily from Peru, but from South America, children of immigrants. But I, I also grew up with uh, other communities, African Americans, and certainly um, members of the white community. And sometimes there was strife, like even in situations like now. We see a lot of changes in neighborhoods, the, the makeup of the changes in neighborhoods. Some of it has to do with gentrification and certainly that's a negative. But, um, but whenever you have change, there's always friction. And I certainly grew up in a situation that was one part certainly welcoming, one part 
um, resistant to change and, and certainly went through my uh, trials and tribulations in, in regards to prejudice. But I, again, those are the things that, that make us who we are. And, and I wouldn't change a, a thing. I think Patterson is a wonderful city. It's a city that, that has had um, peaks and, and valleys and, uh, and will continue to do so. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it will continue to lift itself, up, lift itself up as an industrial city and continue to be part of the, the, the fabric of the American experience. Yeah, I'm in New Jersey, so I, I know Patterson and I've been to Patterson. And so I, you're, you, you taught me, though, some people that came from there. I, I didn't know you, you named a couple that I didn't know about. So I'm, get, I'm getting a little history lesson, too, at here. That's great. That's great. So now when you moved out of Patterson, where did you head to? So I, um, you know, I first my family moved to not nearby Ringwood, uh, New Jersey, uh, Wanaki, New Jersey, actually near near Ring, Ringwood. Um, but when I started to come of age and, and started pursuing my career, uh, I, I, my, my career started in New York City. So I worked in Telemundo at NBC and New York One and WPIX. And then I moved to South Florida where I started my 14 year career with NBC Universal and Telemundo. Um, then came back to New York, worked at MSNBC, worked at CBS. Um, I moved to Central Connecticut for about eight to 10 years when I worked with uh, ESPN, ABC News, the Disney um, company. And now I'm living in Chicago, Illinois. I moved here two years ago with my family, uh, again, for a career opportunity. And I've worked at the local PBS station here at WTTW. I mentioned uh, news radio WBBM, the Chicago Reporter, certainly. And of course, with the Latino News Network. I, when you when you say all of these letters and all that, it's just incredible the the work that you've done. So why don't we also tell the audience what kind of work within these stations you do? Sure, I uh, I'm a producer at heart, and certainly the bulk of my career has been in broadcasting, television specifically. Um, so I've worked as a producer for local news, uh, and again in the different markets that I've mentioned. I've worked in cable news, MSNBC in various roles, including as a senior producer. Um, I've worked as news director, so I've had uh, the news department at the local level, both in New York and in Chicago. I'm an independent journalist. In 2019, I took over for the Latino News Network um, and expanded it to five different markets. That's helped me um, continue my work that began with the National Association of Hispanic Journalists in investing time in young journalists, helping them develop. But more than anything, producing content that raises the visibility and voices of the Hispanic Latino community that too often are ignored, are absent in the narratives of mainstream media, regardless of platform. And when they do penetrate uh, mainstream media, it's always in a negative narrative or one dimensional um, storylines that really do not uh, uh, depth, that, that doesn't provide the depth uh, of this community. So, um, so right now, I, I guess I'm in a little bit of a transition where um, the last 10 years, the focus of my work has been in the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and journalism, and more and more in the independent space. I've also um, done a lot of work in communications, uh, in public relations, and really uh, looking at messaging uh, and working with you know, some very prominent brands in doing the same, and that is to produce authentic messaging that really 
engage with the Hispanic Latino uh, community as well as other marginalized communities uh, in looking to provide storylines that are fair and accurate. Why did you go into journalism to begin with? What, what, was, your, what was your pull? You know, journalism communication was really always a part of my life. And I remember, you know, like all of us, right? I am very much the, the child of Hugo and Graciela Valta. And I remember watching my parents gravitate to mass media, not only to learn about their adoptive country, um, so reading newspapers, listening to the radio, watching television, but also to have a connection to their homeland. So obviously back then in the night in the or 1970s, there wasn't the internet, so it was much more difficult to stay in touch with your with your homeland, with your family. And so media was very important in my house uh, for those two reasons. And then I remember, again, not unique uh, as a child of, of immigrants, going with my mother to do chores, so the grocery store, to the bank, to the post office, and to the doctor, and being her translator, right? I would be 10, 11, 12 years old, and I would be translating for my mother um, to someone who didn't speak Spanish and she didn't speak English. And I didn't often understand what I was translating, but I did understand the power of being a, a bridge builder between two people separated by language. Um, that along with a third pillar, and that's service to community. My father, one of the first um, Peruvians to come to Patterson, um, like so many others, would help others from his neighborhood come to the United States. And I would go with him to the airport to pick up total strangers. Um, he would ha help, uh, find, help them find temporary housing, temporary work. So he really instilled in me the, the necessity of, of giving back, right? He was doing what someone had done for him. So th that combination, as I was coming up, was really powerful for me. And I wanted to be involved in journalism to be able to give back right to to provide news and information news and information that was educational and empowering and helping people um help themselves wow that that's just absolutely beautiful that that's that's the reason i mean what what a phenomenal reason but i, I do want to ask you you know being that 10 year old and there, there's <clears> still a lot of that happening now right where that 10 year old you know there's those 10 year olds that are that they are bridging the gap between the language barrier how did it, did it feel to you as um a lot or did you just see it as what it was you know i'm translating language or did you feel like it was it was a huge responsibility at that time that's a good question you know i, I think all children want to, they don't want to be different. And I remember a time where I was resistant in, to, to speak Spanish. And I almost resented it because when I would go to school, my name was different. It was pronounced differently, Hugo, not Hugo. And even when it was pronounced Hugo, it was often mispronounced. Um, I would so I probably did word. that. I apologize if I did no, that. No, 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 please. Um, I would uh, speak a different language at home. I would eat different foods. And so as a child, you, you don't want to be different. You want to be like everyone else. And I remember um, complaining to my mother and, and telling her, I, I, I don't want to speak Spanish. I want to change my name. Why can't we, you know, why do we have to have, you know, rice and, and beans? And why can't we have the food that I'm having at, at school? And um, that was a really important moment. And my mother, you know, really just a wonderful first teacher. She, she listened to me. And she explained to me that 
speaking a different language and being different is a gift. It's a superpower. And she said to me, not everybody um, speaks more than one language. Not everybody has the, 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 the fortune, to fortune to be able to go to another country and, and have you know, somewhat you know, of, of, a, of an embrace of that culture and being in another country and having the same. And, and so she started to instill in me the, what was special about being different and so as I started to help my mother, right? And who doesn't want to, I mean, first of all, an adult, let alone a parent, asking you for help is huge, you, you know, because you're so dependent on, on them. So to have my mother asking me for help and I could do something that even she couldn't do, um, that was really special. And, and that's when I started to embrace being different and really um, uh, being purposeful and being bilingual, bicultural. It's interesting because um, my my uh, children's father is Brazilian and his family, um, he's first generation. And he says the same thing as you in that at first he didn't want to be that different, right? And he didn't want that responsibility. And I feel like that might be a common theme, right? Because it's, it's you don't want to be different. You don't want, you know, you don't want to talk that other language because you don't want to appear. But then all of a sudden there's a moment where you embrace it and you, and you feel like it is, this is your culture and, and it's, it's something to be proud of and to share because we can learn from each other's cultures. So um, th- thank you for sharing that. So your career evolution, first job in journalism was what? As an intern. I was an intern at uh, WN, WNJU Telemundo 47 in, in, uh, in New York. Uh, an internship turned into a part-time job, um, then into a full-time job. And I worked with them for, I think, two, maybe three years before I went to NBC in Miami but then came back to Telemundo and, and was able to lead the news department because uh, uh, when I came back to New York, worked at MSNBC, worked at WNBC, um, in, 20, in 2002, then parent company of NBC, General Electric, purchased Telemundo and, and was, uh, had the opportunity to work on very interesting projects across uh, the United States in many different markets, bringing two companies, uh, again, separated by corporate culture, separated by language, separated by culture period, and really looking to um, bring them together, um, really setting the the foundation of how they would work together, um, learn from each other and be very competitive in those markets. And and after a year of working in Los Angeles and uh, in Dallas, Texas and Chicago, um, certainly New York was given the opportunity to lead the Telemundo News Department in New York. Incredible. Ham 10 is a leader in IT enterprise solutions and staffing. They are driven to transform their clients' business performances. They do this every day by providing the clients with the best services and products. Products like BizLego, an online community platform, and Colear, a unique learning management system. They also transform the lives of women and children through their associated nonprofits, SheTech, which supports women in and joining the technology field, and Softkin, support organization for kids in need. PAM10, technology for social good. Go to pam10.com for more information. 
in your bio, it states it states about the fact that uh, Latino News Network is the only English language news and information outlet focused on serving Hispanics, Latinos, and New England, right? So, uh, so uh, statistically, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but what would the population be of Hispanic, Latinos, and New England? Yeah, and that's a very important nuisance, you know, I mean, nuance, sorry. Um, what happens often, and it's, it's changing, but certainly um, as I was coming up, there's a misconception about Hispanic Latinos. So right now the US census tells us that of the more than 60 million members of the community, a majority of them are US born. And as such, English is their first language. But when you look at media, and there was a study in 2019 um, by the city of New York, uh, Graduate School of Journalism, a, a national study, it found that of the more than 300 uh, news outlets, regardless of, of platform, focused on Hispanic Latinos, a majority of them were in Spanish. Now, a majority of them are in Spanish, although a majority of U.S. Hispanics are American-born. And so uh, the Latino News Network is one of a handful of news outlets that is speaking to the majority of U.S. Hispanics in their language with a cultural uh, nuance that is absent again in mainstream media. And I think that was really important. The second thing that's important is that we're digital and the majority, because of the, the, the age group, so majority of US Hispanics are younger. Many of them are millennial and as, and as such millennials gravitate to the digital platform for their news and information and entertainment. Being digital and in English is really what, what where the focus should be for news and information. Because again, that's, where the majority of, the, of this particular population is consuming um, that type of content. So it was really uh, important for me to, to nurture and work with others in, in developing the Latino News Network. And New England is really interesting. You know, it, we were born in New England first and foremost because our founder, Diane Alverio, happened to be a resident of Connecticut. And so she, she planted a, a flag um, in what was familiar to her. So it was really her vision in 2012 about uh, thinking, and, and she's also a former president of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. So she understood that the, the challenges of continuing to demand to, to work with media in better representation of Hispanic Latinos in newsrooms and in news coverage but, uh, but that's really um, uh, like swimming upstream. And so at that time in 2012, because of technology, um, she, a pioneer herself, um, took the, the opportunity to create something new. And in 2019, when she retired as a journalist, I was very happy to take over for her. So uh, New England, uh, first and foremost, because that's where she was born, but there's a large, port, you know, first of all, you can walk from New York to Los Angeles, no matter how large the market is or how small, you're gonna come across a Hispanic Latino. Uh, uh, so it's not that there, there are only concentrations in certain states or certain markets where Hispanic Latino lives. Also, Spanish is the second most popular uh, language spoken in the United States. In fact, more people speak Spanish in the United States of the more than 25 plus countries with the exception of Mexico. So we're very much a bilingual, and I would say a Hispanic Latino country, although some members of, of especially in, in 
in, uh, in the political realm would say otherwise. And so in New England, what we have is a large concentration of Puerto Ricans um, that live in, in the metropolitan area, so certainly in Connecticut. And many of them have come of late because of all of the economic and infrastructure strife that's happening in the island and certainly after Hurricane Maria. But you have Ecuadorians, Colombians, um, certainly in, in Connecticut and Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Uh, many of them are immigrants, but also many more are, are native to, to those states. So the Latino News Network has five different uh, platforms, right? Different right. in different states. Do you want to just like, share which ones which ones you cover and how do people find them? Yeah. So we're in uh, Connecticut. That's our flagship. We're also in Massachusetts, New Hampshire. Um, late last year, we expanded to Rhode Island and now in the Midwest and Illinois. And really, you could find us by um, the name um, for example, uh, Connecticut Latino News uh, and Rhode Island Latino News on, on, on Google. Um, like I mentioned, we're, we're certainly a digital platform, but we also have a YouTube channel and a series similar to this called Opinion Plus. We have a podcast called Three Questions With that I host that you can find in Spotify. And we, we're also very active in social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn and use those platforms, not only to promote our stories, but to produce native content in, uh, in them. What types of stories do you like to cover? Um, human interest stories, right? I, I think that every story is about a person. Um, even when you're talking about things like um, immigration and election, um, there's all, there, it's, I think it's very important to collect data but it's important to also put a face to that data. So, you know, we, we often, we did it, we've, we've been doing a series on, on the census and the census is a lot about numbers, but we very much unpack that and talk about what, what do those numbers mean and what it means to say, Hispanic Latinos in Connecticut will be very different than Hispanic Latinos in Illinois and in Massachusetts, given the makeup of the, Hispanic Latino population in those states and even just the, the number of Hispanic Latinos in those states. So it's always about putting a face to the story, whether it's um, about small businesses and introducing uh, the audiences to their neighbors um, that are very much like them, regardless of their uh, race, ethnicity, and gender. These are people that are you know, entrepreneurs that are looking to lift themselves up. Um, people in government, people in education, people in health. You know, a, a lot of times um, when, we, when we're watching legacy media, authoritative figures don't look like us, meaning they don't look like Hispanic Latinos, they don't look like marginalized members of the community, and sometimes they don't look like, you know, women as well. It's always the authoritative figure, and I'm generalizing, but but there are studies that support it, is usually a white male. So it's very important for us to chip away at those stereotypes, but making sure that we're using our platform to, to again, elevate the visibility and the voices of all members of the community. Certainly members of the community that are blue collar workers, white collar workers, young and old and everywhere in between, foreign born, a native born, um, and really celebrate their, their wins as, as, as well as highlight their challenges. And in, in doing that, 
we're really, um, as good storytellers, having larger discussions about members of the community that, is, that certainly begins with Hispanic Latinos, but is inclusive of other members of, of, that, uh, of, of those neighborhoods in that community. You know, I, we've been seeing a lot of firsts happen lately, right, as a country, and, and a lot of firsts that we should have been having way earlier than this, right? In your opinion, being, being part of and seeing the, the evolution of journalism, why do you think it's all happening now? What, you know, what, what held us back? Well, I'm very skeptical of all of the things that we're experiencing now because I've, I've seen them come before. Although I do acknowledge that we're in a very unique moment in time in, a, in our nation's history. A lot of that is being driven by COVID. You know, uh, we've been now, we're walking on year three under COVID. And despite the fact that many people are celebrating getting rid of their masks, we're still very much knee deep in COVID-19. But COVID really changed the dynamic in that it exacerbated it, 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 systemic existing disparities that were that have always been there around healthcare, certainly around education, especially where we saw uh, remote learning and how uh, black and brown communities were being left behind because of a lack of those types of resources. Um, we saw it in in the workforce. Many black and brown communities, certainly Hispanic Latinos, did not have the luxury of being able to work from home. They're essential workers. They, they're the ones that kept our, our country running, especially in those three months where we were uh, shut down. Um, representation in government, right? A lot of decisions that were being made at the federal, state, and local level were not being made um, in mind with the people who were most affected by COVID-19 it, 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 including when the vaccines were made available. And that's because we're not represent, we don't have equal representation in government in those decision makers uh, and those people who are making those decisions about us. Then came the killing of George Floyd and with it um, led and by the black community, uh, conversations, um, debates, arguments about systemic racism, not just in policing, but in many different facets of our society. And then the last thing I would, I would say, well, two more things, right? And then there's the, the divisiveness of the 2020 election and, and really the, divis the divisiveness of, of the Trump administration um, that culminated in, in what we saw in November and certainly what we saw in January um, uh, days before the, uh, the Biden uh, inauguration. And then of course, there's the, the census uh, and, and even though they're, they're right now they're looking at uh, an, an undercount in, in certain communities, Hispanic Latinos being one of them, um, that's always a telltale sign of where our country's moving um, and, and we're inching our way closer to being a majority minority country. So COVID-19, um, George Floyd and Donald Trump, a lot of companies started to really um, look at, at themselves. And I think for the most part, or what I've seen, enact initiatives that are very purposeful in moving the needle and really doing something um, thoughtful um, for the long-term when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, why I'm skeptical is because every 10 years I've seen this and it's largely driven by the census. You know, the census comes out, 
and people lose their minds. Oh my God, look at the numbers. The country's changing. And then they look to, to uh, Hispanic Latinos that are driving the population growth, certainly driving the economic growth uh, more, more close to $1.5 trillion of purchasing power. And then what they do for the next five years is uh, these large companies is throw money at any initiative that looks to engage with that community and hopefully garner their business, but they're very superficial. They're, they're very uh, uh, short-term um, initiatives and often led by people that are not members of the community that they're trying to attract. And so more often than not, they fail because of that. And then ultimately, because we do have a economic cycle, there's the tightening of the belt somewhere between, 20, you know, in, in, in this scenario, 2010 and 2020, and then initiatives, especially DE&I, that are seen by the white establishment as nice to have, uh, to be able to point to at a PowerPoint presentation or to speak to in a sales pitch, they're the one, they're the first ones to go away. Um, and, that, and then all of the work and momentum that happened in five years, in, in, almost overnight, goes away and then it comes back again in the, next, in the next census. My hope is, and I've seen some of this, that some of the initiatives that have been enacted are a little more thoughtful in first looking at where the company is in regards to DE&I, not just a checking of the box, how many women do we have in our company or how many African-Americans, et cetera, but really looking at, are we a welcoming place for, for diversity? If not, we need to change that dynamic before we even start to think about recruiting uh, um, people who are going to help us in that next evolution. I've seen a lot of that. I'm hopeful for those initiatives because that's more about the long game versus the short game. And ultimately, the last thing I'll say is diversity, equity, and inclusion is not just doing good for the community. Certainly it's that, but it's also good for business. And if you, if regardless of what your business is, if you're, if you don't have in mind um, Hispanic Latinos, African Americans, Asian Americans, women, LGBTQ, and so on, if they're not part of your strategic short-term or long-term growth, then you're doomed to fail, and ultimately, you're going to have to shut down. Well, your organization, you know, the way I see it, needs to be representative of the community and the customers and the clients that you serve. I mean, and, and that's been the issue. And what one of the things that I'm most nervous about is the fact that we do a lot of talking and I see a lot of talking. And now there's there's a lot, lot of summits and forums and all of these things happening. But we need to make sure, like you said, and it's so valid that the momentum turns from talking into doing and creating and creating systematic change. And what I worry about, like you do, is that is this the, the topic now, because it's so hot, that it, it cannot go away. We must continue to, but we have to create action. And it needs to come, and I'm sure you, you I, I think you'll agree with me on this, is that from the top, right? So if you put somebody in a DEI position, and yet the person above them is not diverse, that person still needs to support that person who is diverse and be behind them as they work to make the changes that are necessary and be there to support. And I had a, I had a podcast guest that was talking to me about someone who was placed in that position. And in one case, the CEO was supportive. And in another whole case, the CEO was like, okay, that's, that's you handle that, but not stamping the approval from the top. And that makes a major difference. 
That's true. It, it, look, I, I think um, when you're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it has to be a multi-pronged approach. A lot of the DEI initiatives, especially in hiring, is at the at the entry level, and that's fine. Except that studies show that decision making has a trickle down effect from the top to the bottom. So if you have leadership that is not reflective, as you said, and inclusive of, of your customers, of the people that you're serving, then ultimately the decisions that you're making are very narrow-minded and not um, uh, in tune to the wants and needs of the, of the customers that you're looking to, to serve. Now, if you're so, so you have to hire entry level, but you also have to hire and in, in positions that have power and influence and resources to really enact change. And, and it's also, you know, when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's an overemphasis on diversity, the makeup of what a company looks like. Um, inclusion, right? And it is also very important. You can't have one without the other. So Diversity is about um, who's on the team. Inclusion is about who gets to play. And equity is about creating an, an environment for upward mobility. It, a lot of times in companies that I've worked with, um, they don't have a recruiting problem. You know, if you want to work, say, at ESPN, you know, the mecca for sports journalism, ESPN doesn't have a challenge in recruiting but they do have a challenge in retention because once you get there, you have to ensure that, the, that there's an environment that's not just welcoming, but that is going to create a pipeline for especially entry level for upward mobility. If that's not in place, as soon as you get them in the door, they're, they're facing an environment that tells them, welcome. Now, in order for you to be successful, you need to assimilate to our culture, which is completely counterproductive to why you hired that person for their diversity. They get frustrated. They don't see themselves in the leadership and they're out the door. So you have to, uh, and, 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 and diversity, equity, and inclusion is progressive, right? You, it, it's change that needs to happen um, over time, but it needs to be methodical. Um, there's no silver bullet. And you can't be a bull in a china shop type of change, very mm -hmm. quick and very destructive. So I think that um, the approach needs to be key hires all up and down that hierarchy in that company, and then allowing those people to do their jobs. I've been I've often been in a situation where, man, I was sold on what the what my job was going to be uh, as a as a a person that's hired to enact change, um, a change agent, uh, a, certainly a disruptor, but then not having the support to actually do that and then almost kind of be shoehorned into uh, in, 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 in to be, being a token. And that was really very frustrating um, for me. And um, certainly like so many other people um, left um, for, for, or other opportunities. Yeah. Nobody wants to just be there to be a, a box checker, you know, and that's, and that's, that's the problem, right? Because we, we also have a, a fine line because as we move into the space should have been there 
before, but as we move into the space, we can't just be saying, okay, now we need somebody who is Latino. Now we need somebody who's brown and black and, and just checking boxes. We have to make sure that, like you said, not only are we bring them in, but we're allowing them to infuse what their talents are into the culture of the company. Yeah, and you, have to, you have to continuously be developing your bench. Um, and, that, and then you, you create a systemic um, environment for that, that supports diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and then I also, the last thing I'll say is diversity, equity, inclusion includes members of the white community that often feel alienated as soon as they hear the word diversity. Diversity includes them. They need to be part of the decision-making, the conversations, because uh, it, it, you know, how can we support DE&I and segregate and alienate the largest population in a company and in the country? So often DE&I also fails because it, it, it alienates the white community. And that, that's one of the, the, the problems. And that's so counterproductive because the whole point is coming, the coming together. And that's, so I'm glad, I'm really, thank you for bringing that up because I think that was a really, really important message as well. You know, um, can you help leaders? Like we were just, we were talking about this before a little bit, but the great resignation, right? Pe- people, they just were like, I'm out. You know, it, it was, it was a lot. They, they decided also, I mean, the pandemic, hit us in so many different ways, including the fact people having that realization, life is short, I don't like where I'm at, I don't like the way I'm being treated, I'm out. Um, but help leaders to better understand what they need to do to retain staff and hire a workforce that is representative of the companies they serve. It's easy to say that, but what would you give them if you know leader might be of an organization is listening right now, what advice do you have for them? Um, I, I think the the, we're living in very interesting times. And I, I think the great resignation is such a seismic change in the workforce where prior to COVID-19, um, employees were made to feel like, I, I should be grateful to be here. I should be grateful that I have a job. And that, uh, that feeling was certainly nurtured by by those in power in in your respective companies. What we learned with COVID-19 is that that flipped. You, the company, should be grateful that I'm here. You, the company, should feel fortunate that I'm a member of your team. And then the work-life balance. Before COVID-19, it was almost unthinkable that you could be productive working from your home or working anywhere else than the office in an environment where, you know, you had your manager almost hanging over you. So COVID-19 really did away with that. I think it's very important for managers to listen to the needs and wants of their employees and negotiate something that is equitable for both. I think uh, a lot of times um, right now, a lot of candidates, what they're looking for, hey, I'd love more money, who, who doesn't, right? But, I, but my time and my work-life balance is if not equal or more important than that. And if you can provide me an environment where I can have that balance, maybe a hybrid where I'm working from the office a couple of days a week, couple of days on working from home, especially if you're a woman, and we know 
that women have had the short end of the stick in corporate America since before COVID um, and, uh, and even during COVID, that's really valuable. So I think if you want to recruit and retain employees, listen to them. And it's not a turnkey. What I need, what you need is going to be similar and dissimilar. But if you can negotiate something that is going to help the person be whole and not all work, work uh, and have that balance, that that is going to be key to to the employee um, being all in on their company, um, but also um, having them for the long haul. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I, you, you have like a peek in the window into so many company, different companies in all different sizes with all, all that you, you do. And so that's why I wanted to you know, ask you that question. The other thing is, is that I wanted to ask you is that, and we talked about it before, uh, before the, the interview, which is I'm a novice when it comes to the news and the media. That's just not, you know, I, that's what I rely on others. Right. But one of the things that I guess I was not, I didn't pay attention to as I was growing up was that certain stations that we listened to leaned one way or the other. And we hear so much of that now, right? This station is out. Why is it that we just can't get the news as the news is without it leaning left or right? It is so difficult um, to find news that is fair and accurate. And part of it has to do with the fact that it's a business. Um, I've been in, in this industry for 30 years and I've seen a lot of changes, a lot of that driven by technology, but it is a business. And I think there's, it, it's disingenuous to, to, for, for people to criticize, say, Fox News as being um, very conservative, conservative, even alt-right, when you do have media companies like MSNBC um, and others that clearly are leaning left. Now, that's not to say that either one of them are not doing a good job in presenting information, but, clear, but if you look at the guests that they have on, um, ultimately, when you, when you um, peel the onion, they're really leaning to the left and to the right. And so they're, they're echo chambers to people who are just looking for news and information that is reflective of their own experience. If you look at the audience for MSNBC uh, or, or Fox, it's not going to be um, very surprising to, to learn um, their political leanings um, right. and, their, and, and, and their, you know, so on and so forth. What's happening is there's too much of an emphasis in producing content that really is about um, the ratings, whether it's television, radio, dot com, newspapers, you're, 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 there's an overemphasis in producing content that is going to grow the numbers or maintain the numbers in a very competitive environment that, especially in legacy media, that is seeing um, triple digit numbers leaving a particular platform we saw with newspapers, we're seeing it with television, um, certainly uh, also radio and gravitating to the digital platform. And so that, a lot of that is what's driving the, the, these networks 
to produce content that is not really taking the time to think about uh, producing content that respects the audience and helps them help and, and really provides the, the means for them to make their own decisions. You know, one of the reasons why I came to Chicago and I, and I certainly was very happy to, to work at WTTW, which is the PBS station here in Chicago, is because I, as a, not only a journalist, but as a consumer of news information, started to gravitate to um, PBS as, as one of the few news organizations, and they don't get it right every time, but one of the few organizations that really was trying to present both sides and, and really reflective of our country, right? Our country isn't alt right or, or, or left. The majority of them are somewhere in the middle. And to, and to think that, you know, you, you can either be one or the other is really um, narrow-minded. So I, and then on top of all of that, you have a lot of misinformation that is being produced and provided to you by in, in social media. I can't tell you how many times close friends of mine are sending me uh, content from TikTok, um, from Facebook, and they're just taking it as true. And I'm saying, well, I'm, and I, so I ask them, I go, well, who produced this? You know, and this is a clip. Where's the whole interview? But people uh, are making decisions about stories without even reading them or listening to them or seeing them. They're going by the headline or whatever short um, um, character challenged you are in, in that platform or, or video challenged. And so a lot of misinformation is being poured into the pipeline, which adds to the confusion. But I, I think because this is a business and you have a lot of um, managers that part of how their success is being measured is ratings. Um, you're, you're looking at, uh, at news organizations that more often than not are producing to, to echo chambers to their core audiences as opposed to doing what they're expected to do and that is produce fair and accurate um, news and information and res that respects the audience to make decisions for themselves. Absolutely. And, and like I said, I, you know, growing up, I never really realized it. And as I got older, obviously I did in, in that, which the leaning and it's like, I just want the truth. You know, I, it's like we're in, I'm just in search of the truth and not, not either, either way. So that's the hard part is, fi is finding that. And I know that that's important to you to share in the work that you do. And, and you, you have, uh, I remember early on in the Trump administration, Kellyanne Conway coined the phrase alternative facts. And when I heard that, I was like, what? There's no such thing as alternative facts. Facts are the facts. But there is some truth to that because our perception is that person's truth. So if you have a media that is inundating the populace with one narrative, then that narrative, however um, strong or weak it is, becomes their truth. One of the reasons uh, of the work that I do, certainly with the Latino News Network, certainly with NHJ, uh, in, in demanding better representation in news media is really to chip away at uh, uh, tired stereotypes that have been cultivated for decades by media, including the news media that non-Hispanic Latinos take as truth. Studies show that 
a, a non-Hispanic Latino, how, what, what they think of that community is largely, largely shaped by mass media. And if mass media is creating one-dimensional caricatures of, of my community, then when I'm meeting that non-Hispanic Latino, they already have an image in mind of who I am, where I'm from, that is bought based on falsehoods. So perfectly said. And, 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 you know, I don't know that anything's being done to change the way this is being done. I don't, I don't know if you know of anything that's going on behind the scenes, but it doesn't look like there's any changes happening to the way the news is being driven. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I think that the, it's, it's slow moving. I can point to many um, different companies that are, uh, you know, ABC News, CNN, certainly, uh, Telemundo and Univision, both in the English and Spanish language space, of course, um, are, are certainly uh, moving in certain areas, experimenting, especially with streaming uh, services with digital and in, in doing so, but largely, overwhelmingly, where we're seeing a large movement is in the independent uh, space. Independent journalists that are not only covering Hispanic Latinos, African-Americans, LGBTQ in a, in a more authentic, profound way, but even covering neighborhoods in a way that just big media can no longer do because of contracting budgets. So even if I look at local media here in Chicago, there's an overarching way that they cover news that sometimes ignores the dynamic of certain neighborhoods on the north side, on the south side, on the west side, you have independent media that is now um, telling stories about their own neighborhoods, um, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's the economy, uh, whether it's elections, so on and so forth, in a way that the big media companies can no longer do. So the biggest movement in regards to fair and accuracy, whether it's by geography or race, gender, sexual orientation, it's happening in the independent space. Well, then that's you know a place that we need to, if we're streaming anyway, right? Why not go to where we can get the most accurate information and, and it being so that it's it's more neutral and it's real and and it's and it's local. That's the other thing. It's about those communities that you may not be hearing about. And let's face it, you know, news also includes good stories, right? And and we don't hear a lot of those that much. And um, you know, I think and you know, looking at your sites, I definitely did see that there was a lot of great human interest stories that were good stories. And that's what we we also need to get a balance between what the what's going on in the world. And, you know, some of the things that some people are doing to make the world a better place. Yeah. So. And we've also adopted solutions journalism. I think uh, the, whether it's um, independent news, local news, national news, there's too much about pointing to a problem, um, not enough about solving the problem. So solutions journalism it is really, you know, part of, of our four, one of our four pillars in regards to the Latino News Network. We certainly want to celebrate the accomplishments of members of our community, um, certainly celebrate culture and ethnicity, but we have to also talk about the challenges that the community has and, in, and selectively also talking about 
what are those solutions? So we lend our platform for discussion and debate. And debate is very important. You know, debate isn't about just arguing your point. It's really where innovation lives, where new ideas are fostered. And so if you're gonna talk about, say, the problem about the dis disparities in the healthcare system, beginning with COVID-19, then you also have to lend your platform so that thought leaders, members of the community, can come and discuss and debate about what those solutions are. If all, as journalists, we're spending time is pointing to what the problem is and not enough creating a space to discuss and debate what the solutions are, then we're falling short on our mission. And debate, open debate, with, without name calling and, and feeling like you have to defend and just be able to be factual, I think is, is so important. Um, and I know that, yeah, I've seen, I've seen you put out stuff about that. And I think that that needs to be more adopted amongst companies, amongst journalists, um, amongst the media. So I appreciate what you're putting out there. And, and I really, I love your platform and, and what you believe in. I think it's all, it's all wonderful. And I, I thank you for, for all that you're doing. What's next for you? Well, um, let's see, what's next for me? I, I, I will continue to collaborate with others in expanding the Latino News Network. Um, like I mentioned, we're we're now in the Midwest with Illinois. Um, we, we, we certainly plan in the next three years to finish out New England. So uh, Vermont Latino News, Maine Latino News. I think here in the Midwest, especially in when you talk about elections and, and politics, there's a lot of battleground states here in the Midwest and we're, we're looking to expand to places like Michigan and Wisconsin, Ohio and others. And then of course the, the, the West Coast. So I think my, my focus will be to continue to strengthen the five markets where we are and, and certainly looking to improve on what we're producing, um, but also looking at expanding to other markets in the Midwest and, and, in, um, and in the West Coast. I'm also going to be, um, uh, I, I have uh, introduced a journalism camp last year through the Hortensia Savala Foundation, um, which went, was very positive and, and went very well. We focused the journalism camp on covering ethnicity, <clears throat> race and culture, which is very important, especially in the times that we're living. Not that it's not covered in schools of higher education, but certainly not enough and certainly not with the dynamic, especially with students of color and what they um, should expect uh, as they're entering the workforce, because it's much more than just getting you know, acclimated into a workplace environment. Often they're gonna be either the only one or, uh, or a few uh, people of color, um, or members of their own community. So that journalism camp is very important for many different reasons and we're, I'm looking to continue to expand on it. And I'm also gonna be um, teaching at Columbia College here in Chicago uh, as an adjunct professor. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to continue to grow in that space. Uh, I think uh, I'm not sunsetting yet, but I could certainly see the finish line. Um, I think uh, a lot of what I wanna focus on is continuing to mentor uh, the next um, wave of, of journalists, um, both currently and, and students, and, and sharing what I've learned um, and helping them be successful in meeting their goals. Wow. Well, you sound so busy and you wear so many hats and, you know, 
It's it's incredible. And it's, it's so important. Mentorship is so important. And to be able to help that next generation with, so they learn from you and they don't have to, you know, they're going to need to learn on their own too, but they get to learn some really great gems and of information from someone who's done it for so many years. And that's so important. So thank you for giving back. And that's one, it's just wonderful. Um, so I want to ask you what I ask everybody is, is kind of our last question. I could talk to you for hours, by the way, because you have so, you know, so much great information and hopefully you could come back and give us an update once you start adding more to your, I would love for you to come back and talk more about even the teaching and the mentoring and the, and the camps. Um, but what is the footprint that you're creating right now that you want to leave behind? That's a great question. Um, what do I want to leave behind? You know, I, I think it's, I want, I want to inspire uh, people, journalists, the way that I have been inspired, right? You, you want to give the baton, you know, I, I know there, there will never be a time where I, I will ever feel mission accomplished. You know, we cro- you know I, I crossed that finish line. Um, the best that I could hope for is I've advanced um, journalism. Uh, I've advanced diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've advanced, um, specifically speaking to his, uh, uh, Hispanic Latinos, uh, I've advanced in, in the work that I do, the community. And if I've advanced, however, whether it's an inch or, or more, it's because someone before me provide, created a situation for me to advance. So my hope is that I've done the same for someone else or others. I, I want to leave, I want people to say, wow, you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I'm here because of people like Google who um, were unapologetically um, truthful, honest, um, comfortable with who they are. You know, we're, we're, you know, I mentioned about being a child and you wanna be like everyone else. You don't wanna be different. There's been so many times in my career where I've been in a situation where, man, I could, I could just blend in or, 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 or be that token and I could have a very ro- robust career, hefty title, hefty paycheck. And then I would think, what would my parents think about that? Or my grandmother think about that? You know, a woman who um, would wash the clothes in the neighborhood to make ends meet, you know, uh, my mother, who I would meet during the summer to have lunch with her, because um, that's the only time I could see her when she would have lunch after working in a sweatshop and she would come out drenching in sweat. Or my father, who I, I never saw um, almost seven days a week because he's working two, three jobs. What would they think? And so, I've made decisions that have not made me popular, um, that have made many people uncomfortable, but I know however small or more 
I'm hoping it's more, advanced the conversation so that the next person that comes along um, is still going to have challenges, probably not cross the finish line, but hopefully they're inspired to do the same because someone did it for me and someone did it for that person. So my footprint is unfinished work, but hopefully inspiring work that others will look to, to take on. Well, it sounds like your family would be extremely proud of the fact that you decided to go the low, the road less traveled because it's the hardest thing to do. And I haven't been there in that way that you have a totally different way, but yeah, not always, you know, I'm not always uh, swimming in the same direction as everybody else because your beliefs are strong and you feel like you need to be the one to say, Hey, wait a second. And so I think that's, that's the way we teach our own children too. You don't have to go with the flow just because somebody else said so. Yeah. You, you define your own success. I think uh, success should never be defined by someone else. Um, you define your own success. And, and uh, I think um, that's, that's led to a more enriching and interesting life. Thank you. And like I said, I could talk to you for hours. I so appreciate your time. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, well, you know, again, thank you very much for, for inviting me to be on your program, for being so very generous with your time. I think, you know, what I would leave um, your listeners, your, your people who are watching, is to, you know, never, you know, give up, you know, never compromise. Um, always be your best cheerleader. Um, uh, you know, there are times that I, I, I feel doubt, but always be confident in yourself. There's going to be enough people in your life in many different stages of your life who are going to tell you you can't do that you, you're not good enough um so on and so forth you can't be one of those people you have to be that person that's always telling you yes you can find a way um keep pushing forward um keep believing in yourself uh, don't don't listen to all of that noise listen, you know, march to the beat of your own drum. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really so appreciate that. That, that even helped me today. So you know what, thank you for sharing. And, and that's what it takes. Sometimes just a few words can change someone's life, just hearing it from someone that they may never meet. And that's what I love about this, you know, the, the opportunity to interview people like yourself who are change making every single day. We all are everyday change makers and have an opportunity to make a difference. So thank you so much for being part of this. I'm so excited to have you part of Changemakers. So um, welcome. And, Thank you. And, uh, Happy to be here. And now, where can people find you before we go? Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me everywhere. Uh, at, at Ugo Balta, so H-U-G-O, B as in boy, A-L-T-A. I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, uh, I'm on Instagram. But I usually, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter is probably the best place, especially when, when we're talking about uh, business Instagram and Facebook is more personal, but yeah, you know, I'm happy to engage with folks, talk to folks. I do it all the time. So please reach out. Thank you. And I'm sorry. I said your name wrong in the beginning because it's no, very it's okay. for me to get it right. And somehow I don't know why I looked at your name and I just said, but it's Ugo Balta, right? Yes. It's Ugo Balta. And, and even Hugo, I, what I meant was they would mispronounce my name, like Hugo or Hugo and, you know, without, without even sound, not even properly in English. That's what I meant by that. 
Um, but yes, I, I go by, by Ugo. Thank you. Thank but, you. Well, I appreciate you, Ugo. Thank you so much for everything. And I want to say what I say at the end of every single podcast. Today is the day you cannot go back to yesterday and you do not yet own tomorrow. So what small or large steps are you going to take today to get yourself closer to your goals? Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>